Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my compatriot, Daniel Larison, and we are in week two of the Afghanistan troop withdrawal and its aftermath in Kabul. We will be talking to Shadowproof founder and managing editor, Kevin Gastola, who will be updating us on the Julian Assange extradition trial in the UK and his legacy. In particularly, in particularly his role in the WikiLeaks Afghanistan war logs, the reams of classified documents that expose the lies, war crimes, and realities of the war in Afghanistan back in 2010. But let's first talk about current developments in Afghanistan, in particular the chattering class, the mainstream media coverage of the politics of the situation there. Um, I'm specifically um, referring to the number of generals and government officials who have come out, uh, been sought out by mainstream media uh, to, to expound upon their uneasiness, frustration, anger with Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. And so there's been a mix. There's been uh, the the generals like General Petraeus and H.R. McMaster, who have come right out and said that the withdrawal was a catastrophe, that we should have left 2,500 troops there because we were holding things together, and that you know this is you know basically the the sunken cost fallacy that you know that we are um, diminishing the the service and the lives of, of of soldiers and service members who've been who have been in that war uh, for the last 20 years. And then you have, you know, other government officials, even generals like uh, Michael Mullen, who have come forward to, to talk about their regret for supporting the uh, war in Afghanistan, or not the war itself, but the, the long occupation and nation building exercise. Uh, you have others like Admiral Stavridis who have come out and, and talked about all of the um, you know, the, the, the obstacles along the way in Afghanistan, the road signs, if you will, that uh, should have told us that this was a failed policy to begin with, you know, sort of like almost a retroactive um, analysis or revisionism that, you know, we've come to, to see uh, in the blob over, over the years in our post 9-11 wars. So I thought, you know, Dan, I've mentioned a few examples, but I, you know, just want to talk a little bit about, you know, this this new phenomenon in 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 Washington and what we can do to to call it out. Sure, thanks, Kelly. And so I, I've been amazed at how much uh, airtime and and how much uh, space in in major newspapers the architects of the failed policy have been given. Uh, to, to basically exonerate themselves uh, of their own failures and, and to try to pile everything on to Biden because of the withdrawal, as though the, the withdrawal did anything more than just show how rotten the whole situation was. Uh, it, you know, it's as if you have uh, people who are responsible for building a shoddy building and the building collapses uh, and, and they're running around blaming the cleanup crew uh, for, for having caused the collapse or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's maddening because this is how we end up having no learning in our foreign policy discourse. It's how we end up having no accountability for foreign policy disasters uh, because we keep recycling all the same people back again uh, and, and, and taking their opinions as, as if they are authoritative when they've already been proven to be 
unreliable guides and, and indeed uh, very poor guides uh, over the last 20 years. And, and so there's this, it's this combination of, of pro-war bias that we're seeing all throughout the media coverage of this of the last two weeks. Uh, and there's also this really unhealthy uh, celebrity culture surrounding a lot of these generals. Um, and certainly Petraeus is the most uh, obvious example of that where he had been touted and, and built up into this savior figure, uh, both in Iraq and then in Afghanistan, uh, when, he, when he didn't end up saving anything. Right. Uh, he, he simply prolonged the inevitable. And so it's, it's really uh, it's disgusting to see how they come back again to say, well, we should have just kept prolonging the inevitable, uh, like we were doing before, when the, the whole, the, the assumption behind the entire policy uh, is is what? Yeah, and I, you know, I, I find myself going back to the Afghanistan uh, papers uh, that were published last year uh, by Craig Whitlock in the Washington Post, and of course, they they they're um, they're you know experiencing a resurgence now. And Craig Whitlock has Whitlock has a book out uh, on the papers, and he's added a lot of reporting to that since. Um, but what bothers me most about this conversation, you know, the talking about these generals and other folks coming forward now, is that a lot of them were speaking out, but they were speaking to the spectral and specter general for Afghanistan, uh, John Sopko. And they thought it was off the record. <laughs> so they weren't speaking out. They were, they were speaking privately about their concerns that the war was unrenable. And we're talking about uh, top military officials. We're talking about State Department diplomats. Uh, I, there were hundreds of them who were interviewed uh, by uh, the Special Inspector uh, General. And, you know, Craig only got you know, these, you know, interviews through FOIA and doing extra interviews about them. Uh, so what bothers me is that we, that there are people who were very much aware of the problems all along, but weren't brave enough to speak publicly about them. And yet the mainstream media keeps going back to uh, officials or former officials, retired officials, because they feel somehow that they have more credibility or gravitas than the people who actually were out there, put their necks out there all along to um, contradict, you know, the um, prevailing narrative about the war. And I'm right. thinking of people like Daniel Davis, you know, who uh, went out there, lieutenant colonel who had been in Afghanistan, and he decided to uh, try to alert Congress that he felt that that the generals uh, were misrepresenting conditions on the ground when they were testifying. This is back, I believe, in like 2012. And when he couldn't get anywhere, really, on that score, he went to the press and he wrote a lengthy uh, op-ed about how the generals have been lying to us. And uh, he paid for it dearly, uh, career-wise. You know, he ended up retiring from the, the Army, but really couldn't find a job, you know, because uh, defense contractors aren't going to hire anybody who blew the whistle on uh, the, the military-industrial complex. And, and that's usually, you know, that's the best 
paying lucrative, you know, um, opportunity that most guys that leave the military can find. And, you know, uh, academia is so um, mealy mouth and pusillanimous that they're only, they only hire uh, military generals who fail <laughs> to teach other kids about military history and strategy. So, you know, he, he paid for that, but you know what? He can hold his head up high, but do you think the mili- the, the media is going to Daniel Davis to get his opinion on, on Afghanistan? So it's very frustrating that they keep going back to the well with people like McMaster and Petraeus and others uh, when those were the guys who were part of the problem. Definitely. And, and they're, they, they clearly have uh, not only an agenda for what they think the policy should be going forward, but they, of course they have a lot of their own uh, personal legacies uh, to, to burnish and protect. And so if they, if they come to you and say everything was working fine or it would be working fine as long as we just kept going, uh, you, you have to view that with uh, intense skepticism. You have to assume that they're, they're selling you a bill of goods uh, to make themselves look better. Uh, and, and when you see how, uh, ineffective the policy was, how, how poorly the war really was going, uh, it, it becomes impossible to believe people like that. Uh, but but I, I suppose we, we prefer, or at least the media prefers, to tell sort of comforting stories about our foreign wars uh, that you know, we just needed to, to devote a few more resources or we just needed a little more willpower. And if we had just done that, then things would have turned out okay. And, and the, the real lesson that ought to be taken away from all of this is that we can pour massive amounts of money and, and throw away thousands and tens of thousands of lives uh, into the meat grinder, and it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it isn't going to work because the, the premise of the, the policy is fundamentally flawed. And so the, the, the larger problem with all of this spin that we're getting from the, the pro-war side is that they, they still haven't learned after all this time and after total collapse uh, that what they were trying to do, that what we were all trying to do uh, from the beginning uh, was going to fail. And so as long as that myth is kept alive, the, the greater the chances are that somewhere down the line in another 10, 20 years, they're going to try it again somewhere else. And, and that would be the, the greatest waste right. of all. I totally agree with you. And I guess, uh, you know, before we go, it, you know, we should talk a little bit about the politics. I, I, I get you when you say, you know, Petraeus and others, particularly McMasters and some of these other guys, um, you know, are, they're, they're, they're protecting their own legacy. They're protecting their own reputations. Uh, But in other cases, a lot of this is purely partisan politics. So you turn on Fox News right now and everything is about criticizing the withdrawal, criticizing the execution of the withdrawal. Hey, I I don't want to stand here and defend what's going on on the ground right now and mistakes were made in terms of like the planning. I would like to see all of our SIVs, you know, the translators and interpreters out of there. Um, So I get that. But I feel like there's this piling on on the right because it's Biden. And I have a feeling the tone, the tenor might be different if it was uh, if Trump actually succeeded in executing this withdrawal on his watch. And then on the other side, you know, you do see um, you do see some some folks, uh, some former neocons like Jennifer Rubin in the in the Washington Post are, are defending the withdrawal. And I'm and I'm happy 
I'm happy that she's seen the light, quote unquote, and is defending withdrawal. Um, but I, you know, I question, you know, the um, the um, the actual authenticity of her position. So it is interesting to see the jockeying around uh, uh, politically and in, in in terms of how people are vocalizing their support or criticism of the withdrawal. I think it's it's important that, you know, folks like us who have always, um, you know, um, uh, preferred uh, principle over over uh, party and have stuck to our guns through thick and thin, um, you know, keep calling out you know, the hypocrisy that we're seeing uh, and uh, even the fair weather friends, you know, uh, which there will be fair weather friends. Um, but it is, uh, I think it's up to us to, to continue um, to push back, you know, on at least the, the war party narrative, um, who, which is trying to conflate this bad execution, this bad withdrawal uh, situation with the overriding idea of, of, with, of, with, of ending, you know, at least that the, the military chapter of that war. Definitely. And I, and I've seen, uh, there's been a lot of opportunism, uh, as, as you were saying, uh, in the, the partisan response there, there were quite a few senators, uh, who on the Republican side who welcomed Biden's withdrawal announcement back in the spring and who are now turning on him, uh, in an instant, yeah. Uh, the 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 moment that things begin to look a little bit bad, uh, and and that I mean that just shows how shallow and uh, insincere their earlier support for withdrawal was. They they went for it when they thought it was uh, politically low risk and mm-hmm. and popular. Uh, now that it might create some problems for them, uh, they're running away as fast as they can. And unfortunately, that's I mean that's often the case with members of Congress. That's why members of Congress have been ducking their responsibilities in matters of war for decades. Uh, they don't want to take responsibility, uh, even if it's a policy that they theoretically support. As soon as something looks bad on television, uh, they, they run and hide. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm thinking of someone like Josh Hawley. Uh, and I, I think even Rand Paul has come out and then started t- attacking Biden uh, for supposedly humiliating the country when he's following through on a policy that Rand Paul has advocated for for I don't know ten years, so it's 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 pretty cynical. It's it's pretty opportunistic, and it's not uh, very impressive. Uh, as as far as something like Jennifer Rubin goes, it's it's funny because she'll every few years she'll sort of pick a political figure to defend blindly, uh, no matter what. And so, yeah, the, the fact that she now that she's sort of switched sides and is now a cheerleader for the Democrats, uh, she's just as bad about it <laughs> as she was when she was defending Romney, uh, uh, whatever, nine years ago. Right. So, so I mean, you'll, you'll have people like that uh, in D.C. That that's part of the the media culture. It's part of the political landscape. Uh, but what, what I what I have actually been impressed by, while while by the Biden administration's execution on a number of things has not been great. Uh, their communications has been really bad uh, in many places. Uh, what what has impressed me is that Biden is not buckling. He's not yielding to this freakout and backlash against the decision because he genuinely, it seems like he genuinely believes that it's the right thing for the country uh, to finally put an end to this. And we've seen previous presidents uh, give in to that kind of pressure and backtrack. Uh, Trump couldn't follow through on a withdrawal to save his life. 
Uh, and that was that was a big problem with his foreign policy. When push came to shove, he would always defer to the military, uh, and they usually wanted to stay. Uh, and and even and, and of course Obama got ruled by the military repeatedly uh, when he was president, which is how we ended up with the surge in Afghanistan in the first place. So uh, so Biden does get some real credit, I think, in, in my book uh, for sticking with it when it would have been extremely easy to to try to backtrack and say, oh, well, uh, things were worse than I thought and uh, we have to stay and and uh, never mind what I said about getting out. Uh, he, he would have been hailed as uh, the next FDR or something probably if he had done that, but it would have been a horrible choice for the country. Welcome to our show this week, Kevin Gastola. Kevin is the managing editor and writer at Shadowproof, which describes itself as a press organization driven to expose systemic abuses of power in business and government while developing a model for independent journalism that supports a diverse range of young freelance writers and contributors. Kevin has been around for a while, a journalist, author, documentary filmmaker. Kevin cut his teeth covering the massive WikiLeaks dump in 2010, which produced the Iraq and Afghan war logs. Writing the dissenter beat for the blog Fire Dog Lake, he covered the court-martial of Chelsea Manning, who was tied to those leaks, and substantially covered the case of John Kiriakou. He has been following the exile and court trials of Julian Assange at Shadowproof, which took over where Fire Dog Lake left off in 2015. He co-authored with Greg Mitchell, Truth and Consequences, the U.S. versus Bradley Manning. Since 2014, Gastola has co-hosted with Ronnie Halek, the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the introduction. Yeah, um, I've been a big fan for a long time. Like all that backstory, I was there <laughs> reading you during that period. Um, I've relied on your passion and reporting on the Julian Assange case, specifically from the very beginning, uh, from his flight from Sweden to the UK to asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years, and now his fight to avoid extradition to the US. Um, there's been a lot going on in the world today, so many folks might have missed that not only is Assange still in jail, but he is forced to stay there while the U.S. appeals a British court ruling that refused Washington the ability to take him back to the U.S. to face espionage charges in their 18-count indictment. Um, keep in mind, he was arrested out of the embassy in 2019, and so he's already spent more than 50 weeks on, the, on charges of bail jumping. So now his incarceration today is all about the extradition and the appeal and the fact that the Brits consider Assange, who doctors have said is in poor physical and mental condition, uh, still a flight risk. He's still considered a flight risk. All of this during COVID. Um, so Kevin, can you talk a little bit about what is at stake in the case today and whether the experts you talk to believe that Julian will be extradited to America to ultimately stand trial? 
That's a good setup. I do believe that Julian Assange's legal team is in a pretty good position when it comes to the extradition case. Obviously, a far better position than if they had the extradition request granted by the lower court. So it doesn't feel like Assange's legal team is winning or that Assange is winning because he's still in jail. But that's, I think, owed to the United States government's influence over the UK government and maybe uh, their deference in the court system to the United States government's requests for, uh, and not limited to, to Julian Assange, but it could extend to other cases that have been of international significance where we've brought people over from the UK and later put them on trial. And so uh, what we see happening now is that the US government at the end of October will have an appeal hearing on all the grounds that they would wish to appeal where they will challenge the findings of the judge, of Judge Vanessa Baretzer, who concluded that Julian Assange posed a risk of suicide. But not just that like he would make the choice to commit suicide because he doesn't wanna come to the United States and face a trial, but because he has a mental health disorder that was diagnosed in which he would not be able to control his impulses. Um, The other thing is they'll have their, the the prison system. I've I've, I've been adamant about this, that one of the key aspects of this case has become the state of the United States' incarceration system and what happens to people when they are in jail awaiting trial and what kind of treatment you endure after you are sentenced to prison if convicted and the sort of measures that can be imposed on you if you are seen as a national security prisoners, so to speak. There's something called special administrative measures that the attorney general can authorize in order to control people and who they're able to communicate. And, and there's all sorts of other restrictions. And that will be on, uh, that will be a focus of the hearing, them challenging that Julian Assange would not be cruelly or inhumanely treated in prison, in U.S. prison. Right now, that is a chief obstacle to them being able to bring Julian Assange to the United States and put him at, on trial. You know, in the larger sense, what's at stake really isn't going to come through this next phase of the Julian Assange extradition proceedings. We've mostly abandoned that because now uh, we're really digging into a technicality here that goes to human rights. I guess I shouldn't downplay it as a technicality, but it moves us away from the core fundamental issue, which is the press freedom that is at stake globally if the U.S. succeeds in bringing Julian Assange to the United States to put him on trial. And I think the most significant thing to point out here, and whenever you talk about this case, is that Julian Assange is not a U.S. citizen. He is an Australian. And yet the U.S. government from Donald Trump and now under Joe Biden insists that Julian Assange had to obey secrecy laws in the United States. But not only that, um, they are basically suggesting that he 
is subject to the same rules and guidelines as somebody who is a federal government employee or a contractor because they sign non-disclosure agreements to protect classified information. And we know that they can be punished. And while I defend them when they are punished for speaking and telling the truth, it's hard for me to argue with the fact that they have signed non-disclosure agreements and agreed that they will not reveal those classified pieces of information. Julian Assange never signed a non-disclosure agreement. He has taken no secrecy oath to the United States. He was under no obligation not to publish the material that was provided to him. And yet what we are entering in is this new normal where you could feasibly see countries with influence in regions throughout the world exercise their power and go after journalists for publishing their state secrets and to say that they are doing so and it's justified because the U.S. government brought WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to trial. I totally agree with you, Kevin. Um, The one uh, sticking point, and I think this is what I think the government is hanging their hats on is that they're trying to get him uh, for aiding in to the actual hack into government computers. So it goes beyond the disclosure or the publishing of classified information. They're trying to say that he is part and parcel of the actual uh, government hack. Um, and do you have any sense from the people that you're talking to uh, what, how, how strong that um, argument against him is, that charge against him is? There actually is no hacking allegation in the indictment, which might be surprising to you given the way that the media has has covered the allegation. But what he's accused of doing is potentially aiding and abetting Chelsea Manning when she was seeking some anonymity to move through the Pentagon's computer system and access files. Although the evidence is not really there to support the narrative that the U.S. government has put forward. In fact, during the extradition hearing, there was a uh, person who was involved in uh, U.S. um, Army Criminal Investigation Unit who had reviewed the evidence from Chelsea Manning's court-martial and determined that the allegation that they're making against Julian Assange and and Chelsea Manning was not technically possible back then. So it doesn't actually make any sense what the U.S. government is saying um, could have been. It's really complicated. So I'm going to avoid getting into it because we don't really have enough time. I don't want to eat up our time talking about the technical matter of, uh, of, of password hash cracking, which is the allegation. But just to say that it doesn't actually allege a crime under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. In fact, the Supreme Court um, recently issued a decision that said that a person cannot be accused of exceeding authorized access if they already had access to those files. And so that's crucial because they act, in, in, in many ways, this was the argument that David Coombs, who was Chelsea Manning's defense attorney, made during her court martial, that she had a security clearance. She was allowed to be in those databases going through the Afghanistan and Iraq war logs, the U.S. state embassy cables. Those were all things that she was cleared to read. And so if we're talking about aiding and abetting, Julian Assange can't be said to aid and abet 
a computer crime or a person exceeding their authorized access when that person already had access to those materials. And so I really don't think there's much of an offense here when it comes to the hacking, but it is, it is the gloss that was given to the case by the Justice Department in order yeah. to make it seem like they aren't going after a journalist for the publication exactly. of information. They always go back to it. And you'll hear from his partner, Stella Morris, and others in the legal team that the Justice Department hackified their indictment. And they did that intentionally. And, and we can look at the way this was rolled out, because first, the 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 indictment was just on this alleged computer crime offense that was treated as a hacking charge. And you saw number of people really temper their concern about what the Justice Department was deciding to do. And a few were even saying that, you know, hacking is not journalism, or they were they were saying this is not a threat to press freedom. But I could tell from the way the indictment was drawn up that it had language from the Espionage Act. And then a month later, we got 17 charges under the Espionage Act. And the the there there was no uh, the, the the ruse was out in the open that uh, everything was going to be about the publication of these files. And in fact, it's really topical for us to have this conversation given the Afghanistan war withdrawal of US military forces because what really was the the, the center piece of them going after Assange and, and, and still is, is the publication of Afghanistan war reports and, and namely the idea that the publication endangered US troops and Afghan civilians and aided enemies of the United States. And then also the, the idea that the Taliban read a report, um, uh, 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 or sorry, was studying the WikiLeaks disclosures and, and made some decision to hunt down informants. Again, I'm not saying this is backed up by evidence. This is the US government's allegations against Assange, but that the Taliban was looking to go after informants of U.S. forces and punish them and and did so because they had access to the Afghanistan war log. So that's that's part of how they are seeking to criminalize Julian Assange. And and I'm glad you brought up the Afghanistan war logs um, and the context of today and what we're seeing in the news and the withdrawal of the troops there. Um, and then all sorts of revisionism going on uh, in terms of our, our, our pundit class. Can you just speak uh, briefly about um, the legacy of um, these of, of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange in re, in relation to the Afghanistan war? He he was sort of a uh, a sentinel at the beginning of all of this, warning us. Uh, of what we're seeing today, the failure of that war policy, but yet he doesn't seem to get any credit for that. Yeah, so, I mean, aside from the fact that he was outspoken on what the U.S. government was doing in Afghanistan, there's a clip that has gone viral in the last uh, one to two weeks, uh, as we've seen forces leaving, as we've seen the Taliban take over Kabul. We've we've seen this clip of, of Julian Assange saying that, you know, it was never really about winning a war for the United States. It was about laundering money through the Afghan government and back into the hands of defense contractors and all of these wealthy elites and uh, basically, you know, sort of like trying to 
wash money so he could lower the tax base for these these wealthy and rich people. And it seems fairly accurate given what we know about the uh, abuses that went on with spending. Um, I mean, the 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 uh, cigar, which uh, wasn't involved in oversight for Afghan reconstruction, the thing that they focused on the most was the wasteful spending that went on and how it all went funneled back to contractors without much to show for it in the way of, of, of what you could call progress, you know, depending on what objective you thought was being pursued. But the legacy of, of, of WikiLeaks really with the Afghanistan war logs is, you know, this, this documenting of, of things like assassination squads that were being used in uh, Afghanistan by the United States military forces like Task Force 373. Um, there's there's uh, more detail about the Taliban. And um, uh, I know that the establishment media was really focused on what the files said about foreign influence and how they were receiving support from countries or entities outside of Afghanistan for what they were doing in, uh, in the war. And, uh, we see further evidence of civilian deaths and casualties that went unreported, um, strikes, airstrikes um, that ended up in basically like massacring people who were not targets. And, and so um, this was part of, again, giving us a full picture of what was going on in a war and very similar to what they did with the Iraq war and, and the Iraq war logs. And so, you know, their legacy is giving us a full picture of the Afghanistan war at a time, you know, in 2010, that was after, um, I think I have the timeline correct, but that was after Obama had done the surge. And so essentially the establishment had doubled down on their commitment to the Afghanistan war. We already had President Barack Obama singling out Afghanistan as the good war. And so it was really difficult for anyone from the Democratic Party to oppose it. There wasn't a lot of opposition in the Republican Party, far less than uh, the libertarian strain that we see today that that has uh, made common cause with people like Barbara Lee, who was always at the forefront as the singular vote against going in and invading Afghanistan. Um, and so uh, that's that's really their legacy. Their legacy is, you know, being there and giving us all of this information. And well before the Washington Post did their deep dive with the Afghanistan papers that then made it impossible for you not to say, we know all the information we need to know about what's going on in Afghanistan and, and how um, crucial it is for us to end this or else we're just gonna be continued to, we're gonna continue to waste money and we're gonna continue to waste lives. Absolutely, Kevin, I, I think that's, that's the case. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, staying with Afghanistan uh, and, and the, the response to the withdrawal that we've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've watched the media parade of discredited former officers and politicians condemning the withdrawal and it's been striking to me how no one responsible for the failed policy in Afghanistan or anywhere else has had to pay any professional or political price for that failure. Uh, the only ones that ever pay a price are the whistleblowers that speak out about the abuses that they discover. Um, how do we start to end that elite impunity that we see on display all around us? 
Yeah, I think it starts by elevating these voices, which we know are out there. Um, In addition to the work that I do on Julian Assange, I put together a post with my newsletter on whistleblowers uh, called The Dissenter that looked at people who we should have listened to who dissented against the Afghanistan war. Uh, People like Matthew Ho, who Mm -hmm. resigned from the State Department, who, um, you know, I I know is someone who, you know, you you all are aware of, have given a platform, and uh, he's a voice that's made it onto independent news shows, independent media shows in the past couple of weeks, but he's not getting invited on Meet the Press or, um, or, or CNN or any, and in fact, and that's deliberate, right? Because he says that David Petraeus waged a campaign against him in order to, to keep him off the air when he first gained prominence for protesting the surge that Obama was undertaking. There's Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, who is a really important voice. Um, again, I'm not seeing him on, on Fox News or CNN or, or, or anywhere. I mean, I think he had a couple appearances uh, a week and a half or two weeks ago, but now we've settled into talking to these politicians who have always been on the wrong side. Um, and, and it seems to be more about holding Joe Biden accountable for the withdrawal, for ending a war, rather than holding the U.S. government and its agencies accountable for perpetuating this war for 20 years. Uh, it seems like we've got it backward, you know, where we're talking about um, an unfortunate outcome rather than talking about how we arrived at this unfortunate outcome, um, where we're, we're taking the timeline and we're saying that we're just going to look uh, very narrowly at the last month rather than give people the full picture of how we got to this moment that is dreadful for all of us and we're fearful for what's going to happen to civilian population that um, you know many were told through and I'm just going to call it what it is propaganda around this war that they needed to support um, and I think it's really confusing for people to hear from a U.S. government that we needed to care for civilians and all of this and then all of a sudden we've abandoned them I think there's a lot of disconnect between that and people are trying to sort out in their minds, what do we do next? And there really isn't anything that you can do next. So the way to end impunity is to elevate these voices who have been dissenters. Uh, Daniel Hale is in prison right now serving a prison sentence for uh, an Espionage Act prosecution. He just went to prison, but he revealed details about drone strikes that were going on in Afghanistan and um, who, who was being killed and uh, how that worked. He was an Afghanistan war veteran. So these people who come forward, who are speaking, who we should listen to because they're credible. You know, Barbara Lee should be on our news programs because she's a credible voice who recognized that this wasn't going to be the way we should respond to international terrorism right after the September 11th attacks happened. So we should hear from these people Um, You know, like um, some of the libertarian Republicans who have been right, like Ron Paul and others who have that legacy and are still around should be invited on to tell us, you know, what did they see that these other people didn't see? Um, But we know it's backward. The people who are on are the ones that are being funded by defense or military contractors. Um, They have the support in the media. Um, David Petraeus gets to continue to tell us what he thinks his lessons are for his failed counterinsurgency policy that has never amounted to anything productive or constructive. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, 
you know, we, we saw ISIS rise in Iraq after trying counterinsurgency. What horror show are we going to see in Afghanistan? What kind of civil war are we going to see? Um, and yet we don't see any of the people involved, like you say, taking responsibility for the nightmare that they have set in motion for Afghan civilians. Um, and what they never say is what we would do if we were going to stay Permanently, I mean, they, they seem to want they, they seem to want us to have U.S. forces there permanently in Afghanistan, but they never tell you how that would work, and they never admit that that actually would be completely artificial, and we'd never make any gains for the people of Afghanistan. And I think you know, to bring this back to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, I would encourage people to go see the Twitter feed for WikiLeaks that has been sharing for the last. Um, three days from August 20th through to August 24th, three or four days. You've you've had the person who operates the account, who I don't really know who is, is managing at this point, but they've been going through the database of the Afghanistan war reports and the Afghanistan, or, sorry, and the U.S. state diplomatic cables that were disclosed and releasing all of these this relevant information that shows, you know, this is where we were headed. This is what we were going to see happen eventually, the disasters that have been unfolding for the U.S. military and for the United States government. And so uh, we need to elevate these people. I mean, it's important to criticize. It's important to condemn. It's important to point out the way that the media is compromised by the military industrial complex. And so we aren't getting the full picture of what happens in wars. But I only think the way the, the, the way that is most likely to combat that is to elevate these voices who we should be hearing. This should be, I think we should hear daily updates from someone like Matthew Ho about the Afghanistan war. Um, or Danny Scherzen, who was in Afghanistan as well, who have the expertise and relevance to know because they were there on the ground and could see it with their own eyes and can tell what's going on now. That is completely awful. Right, and they're not afraid to tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the big difference. Uh, and and they don't mince words uh, and they don't whitewash things. Um, you know, we've run out of time, but I, I want you to, can you please tell um, our listeners again where they can find your work um, and what you are up to, anything that you want to convey to the audience in terms of um, upcoming work or appearances or stories that you're working on? Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'll just plug the Dissenter newsletter that I'm doing. It's at the Dissenter, T H E D I S S E N T E R dot org, the Dissenter dot org. And it's a, it's a free newsletter. This is where you'll get updates and the latest on Julian Assange's case, as well as uh, this, the coverage of, of whistleblower stories, um, whether they're dissenting against war or um, dissenting against corporations and other institutions. Um, this is a place you can go to as a resource for that whistleblower coverage. So thank you for inviting me on to talk. Well, thank you, Kevin. I hope we'll get you back on here when um, something breaks uh, in, in that trial situation. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. 
If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.